welcome back to the Vintage Podcast with me, Lena Norms. Today, we're giving you a break from my dulcet tones uh, and we're popping into the studio to listen in on an incredible roundtable all about uh, the new Vintage Classics series uh, of Japanese fiction. The Japanese Classics, there are five in the series and they span a century of Japanese fiction. We have brought in some experts to chat you through the books on the list, help you find one that you might like, and also chat more generally uh, about translations and the treatment of Japanese fiction. Uh, So really hope you enjoy this round table hosted by our incredible staff member, Naomi. And without further ado, I will pass you on to them. Welcome to the Vintage Books Podcast. I'm Naomi Morris-Omori from Vintage and I'm delighted to be on the podcast today chatting to two brilliant guests in this roundtable discussion. As you may have noticed from the title, we'll be discussing Japanese literature today. Vintage have published the Japanese Classics series, which includes five masterpieces of Japanese fiction in gorgeous new editions, cover illustrations by Yuko Shimizu. The series includes The Housekeeper and the Professor by Yoko Ogawa, The Wind-Up Bird Chronicle by Haruki Murakami, The Sailor Who Fell From Grace With The Sea by Yukio Mishima, Out by Natsuo Kirino, and The Makioka Sisters by Junichiro Tanizaki. And I'm so excited to be joined by Rowan Hisayo Buchanan and Polly Barton today. Thank you so much for coming on to the Vintage Podcast. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. So just by way of introduction, Polly Barton has been translating Japanese books into English for over 10 years. And most recently, she has translated Spring Garden by Tomoka Shibasaki and Friendship for Grown-Ups by Naokola Yamazaki. And we also have Rowan Hisayo Buchanan here today, who is a writer, author of Harmless Like You and Starling Days. So today we're going to be talking about this series, as I said. I just want to touch on the fact before we start that um, it's an interesting thing to be discussing books by nationality and in a way it's a it's a very artificial process um, which I'm very conscious of there are limitations to that um, and this discussion is being viewed through a specific lens but nevertheless we'll do our best to talk about these books in a nuanced way um, so uh, what do you think of the series I mean we're we're looking at these beautiful covers at the moment I thought it was really interesting because I, it has. We're talking about, I think, the two most recent writers on it, and to see, you know, I've um, read enough Japanese literature, you know, to see Tanazaki or to see Mishima is not like a huge surprise, but mm-hmm. um, to see Kirino, to see Ogawa as treated as equal and as ser- like worthy of taking seriously was very like, refreshing and nice. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. Um, and actually, so in, on the table in front of us, we've got two copies of out we've got the old copy um which was the the one i first read and then this beautiful new version they're so different that you can hardly believe that it's the same book and just the kind of the sophistication and the kind of you really get a sense of out being honored which is something that i 
I, I think it deserves. Definitely. I mean, so the old cover um, for listeners has a picture of a woman's eye and a knife held up to it uh, with a title on the knife out um, in English and overlaid with Japanese. And then the new cover um, has a beautiful faded um, background of blue and red with um, birds swooping down onto power lines. Um, and we have this um, beautiful vintage classics aesthetic running throughout the series. Um, yeah, I, I mean, for me, first of all, the illustrations are so striking. And then, as Rowan says, there's such a, um, a wide variety. Um, it's it's a really interesting collection. Um, so I'm very excited to talk about them today. Rowan and Polly have kindly chosen um, a favourite book from the series um, to talk about. And it would be wonderful if you could in, um, introduce those books to the readers and, and talk a bit about um, why what, what drew you to those books. I think The Housekeeper and the Professor is in some ways what it says on the tin. It's about a professor, a mathematician actually, who suffered um, short-term brain damage when he got into an accident. Well, And his memory is now only 80 minutes long. And it's about his housekeeper, a woman who's a single mother, who finds herself taking care of him. And it's also about her son, who she ends up being able to bring to work, and the relationship that develops between the three of them as these three very different-seeming people begin to form a bond and begin to find a way to communicate both through mathematics and through the taking care of her child. Yes, great. And and it's a, it's really a very short novel, actually, but very beautiful. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think one of the things I really like about it is how much attention it gives to acts that might not look heroic or important on the surface they're not necessarily dramatic so at one point the housekeeper and her son want to find the perfect birthday present for the professor even though he's not going to remember it because or they think he's probably not going to remember it because his memory's only 18 minutes long but they put so much effort and thought into the perfect present and that becomes like this act of huge heroism or for the professor braving a crowd that he's scared of so that the boy can enjoy a baseball game is given space and like a sense of worthiness. And I think that, for me, that was what was especially moving about the book. Mm, great. Thank you very much. Polly, you're, you're going to be talking about Out. Yes. Um, so Out was originally published in 1997. I mean, it gets called Feminist Noir. Ooh, um, I like that. I know, it's a good, <laughs> it's a good epithet. Um, and it also gets called a crime novel, and... Given that it's a crime novel, I'm going to try and introduce it without giving away kind of too much about it. Yes. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Spoiler free. Yeah, exactly. Obviously, suspense is, is a big part of this book's appeal. Um, so the action centres around four women who work the graveyard shift in a bento box factory on the outskirts of Tokyo. Um, and sort of without any of them really intending it, they become embroiled in a a murder case um, and sort of gradually their relationships and their lives spiral into something, yeah, <laughs> into a form that is is different from how they had seen themselves before. You know, I mean, when we say crime fiction we expect that it's going to be 
quite kind of gritty and dark and dealing with the kind of unsanitized parts of society but I think what's really incredible about Out is that I don't know it takes as its protagonists people who are not not only are they not really the subject of crime fiction or fiction in general but to a large extent they are sort of invisible within society you know these sort of four women um there's this wonderful anecdote from an interview with Kiri Nosan where it's um she's saying that she was after this book was published she was talking to a young man and he said to her thank you very much you know before I read this book I didn't it had never occurred to me that middle-aged women had lives. <laughs> and, <laughs> which is, like, an extraordinary <laughs> statement to come out with. But, like, mm. I, I really think that this book is, yeah. Uh, thank you. Yeah, so I will be talking about The Makioka Sisters by Junichiro Tanizaki. So it is set in the years leading up to World War Two, and it's uh, an intricate family portrait a story of four sisters who are living in Osaka and their family home, um, and another family home in Ashia, in a suburb between Osaka and Kobe. So it's very much um, a Kansai novel. Um, the wealthy Makioka family uh, has an upper-middle-class lifestyle, and they were one of the wealthiest families in the region, but their status has declined um, and, it well, is declining uh, as as the war looms and... On top of that, uh, each of the sisters has their own complex personal relationship uh, with with each other, really, and the, the family name and identity. Uh, and it follows them from the autumn of 1936 to April 1941. I'm really interested to talk about some of the themes and questions which tie these three books together, because I'm also very aware that they're extremely different. The Housekeeper and the Professor was first published in Japan in 2003. Uh, Out was first published in Japan in 1997, whilst the Makioka Sisters um, was serialised in Japan 1943 to 1948. So um, they're from very different periods and obviously genres. Uh, but we were talking just now, Rowan, you brought up uh, the difference in titles, Japanese and English titles, which I think might be a really interesting thing to start off talking about, because I found out that the title for The Housekeeper and the Professor by Ogawa in Japanese is Hakase no Aishita Sushiki, literally meaning The Professor's Beloved Equation. Um, what do you think of that? Oh, well, I actually found that out, again, only recently before I got here, but I haven't had that long to think about it, and I've been trying to decide how I feel about it because the story is told by the housekeeper, and she feels like a very important character, and so I almost felt angry when I felt, like, oh, defensive that she was not in the real title, but then I thought about it more, and I realized that in so many ways this book, um, the professor is very helpless and he gets very nervous and the only way he can really 
um, find a feeling of calm is to talk about mathematics. Mm. And in order to help him, she begins to learn and to love maths herself. And they come to this moment of great tension and it's this equation that pulls them through. And I, even though it's not a thriller, I don't want to reveal everything. Mm. When I think about what that equation is about, it feels like it's about all of them. And I can see that the narrator, if she was asked to title this, if it was you know, a memoir, <laughs> might title it The Professor and His Beautiful Equation. So I came around mm. <laughs> to the original title. Mm. And I also wonder, just from a translator's perspective, you know, there's something about beloved equation. I don't know. It, it feels to me like it works a lot better in in Japanese than it does in English. It kind of, in English, has something of a more cheesy ring, I think, than it would do in the original Japanese and I wonder if this is kind of a way of giving it the gravitas that the actual book does have in a sense. Although I did I did think about it more and I haven't come to any conclusions mm-hmm. but I wondered once I realized it was a choice in translation how much the housekeeper and the professor was supposed to sound like a romance. Yes. And and I think the story is a lot about love but I wouldn't say it was a traditional romance. Yes. And I didn't know how I felt about that. I know what you mean. I know what you mean. And there's something about the housekeeper and the professor which, like, begs the comparison with the remains of the day, which I'm not sure, like, I would have thought about if that title hadn't mm. been there, or maybe it did. Also, just to add, the Makioka Sisters um, was originally titled in Japanese Sasame Yuki, meaning light snow, um, which is completely different um, from the Makioka Sisters, that title. Um, and it reminded me of the title Snow Country, Yukiguni, um, the title of a, another classic Japanese text by um, Yasunari Kawabata. Um, Polly, do you have any thoughts on on that? the differences between those titles? Well, I was reading... So they're both translated by Seidensticker, right? Yes. Um, And apparently he really struggled with the title of Sasama Yuki or the Makioka Sisters because he, he felt like he couldn't find an English word that conveyed kind of with enough subtlety the... what a Japanese person would feel about... Snow. Um, it's also a reference to the the name of one of the characters, which indicates that she's kind of the major role. Which again, a, a, a Western reader, I guess, wouldn't would be get lost totally them. lost. Yeah. So I think, yeah, for clarity, he went for. Well, I don't know if I can say for clarity, but yes. Anyway, that uh, that's very interesting, and, and I feel like the Makioka sisters almost it uh, reflects. Western canon books, right? Like um, Little Women. I was just thinking um, about Little Women. Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, it's got that definitely. that feel, like almost, um, yeah. I was wondering if we could talk about something which I think is explored in all these three novels, um, which is the way labour is portrayed. Um, what do you do? You have any thoughts on the ways in which labour is portrayed in these books? I mean, I think. In, out, labour plays a very big part. Um, I think one of the things that it does um, very successfully is 
kind of exploding this stereotype of a married couple. I mean, I think three of the women in this are actually married or have been actually married. One, I think, has a kind of common law marriage that sort of breaks down halfway through. Um, But, you know, they are married women and there's, there's definitely the idea that within a marriage um, the woman stays at home and brings up the children and the man goes out and does, you know, works and that is enough to sustain the family. And I think here, even though the husbands are working, you know, the women also need, for whatever reason, also to go out and make money. Um, but because they are women um, and you know they they're not they don't have the same job opportunities that that men in their position would have and so you know they they're forced to work the the graveyard shift um there's this one really devastating part where you know this very kind of gifted able middle-aged woman has a daughter who is doing a, a part-time job and she realizes that essentially her daughter is making more than she does. This book has been referred to as parallels have been drawn between this and other kinds of proletarian literature and I think in some in its treatment of labour it does provide a kind of feminist proletarian take on the crime novel (laughs) which is quite a mouthful of a thing to do. Yeah. Mm. It reminded me of Convenience Store Woman Mm -hmm. um by Sayaka Murata, um, mm. in the sense that um, in The Convenience Store Woman, the protagonist who works in a konbini, a convenience store in, in Japan, um, is fascinated by the physical process mm. of things and, and takes a lot of joy out of yeah. that process. Whereas in this novel, there is no joy. <laughs> totally. Um, it's very... It's uh, the the mechanical aspects of making bento and working in the factory. There's an intricate level of detail in terms of describing uh, the mechanical workings of the factory mm. and their jobs, but uh, it's presented in a in a way which clearly um, shows how unhappy everyone is as well. Yeah. Um, yes, and the way that they all kind of as soon as the doors open, they rush to the various stations to try and get the easiest jobs and, and you know, like spreading the rice that is secreted onto the plastic bento in this blob from a machine is apparently really, you know, arduous labour, so they prefer to have the bits, the, the job which is placing the meat and, you know, all of this stuff. And <laughs> if you've ever eaten a, a, a bento box bought from a Japanese convenience store and sort of, I don't know thought about how beautiful they are you, you, you I don't know they, they almost seem these kind of natural creations and to actually have this exposed at what is going into producing these these almost works of art is yeah is quite astounding and eye-opening I think definitely and Rome what did you think of um the the way in which labor was portrayed in the housekeeper and the professor I actually was so thinking about your question, I thought it was a really interesting question because Ogawa walks a really fine line, I think. 
the relationship between the housekeeper and the professor in many ways feels very balanced because she needs her job she needs a job um and this job allows her to see her son in the afternoons which is very important to her and so she needs it but equally his memory is only 80 minutes long and you hear that you know he lost many other housekeepers he wasn't able, they weren't able to keep them and i my rowan's um grandmother um, have, has dementia and I know how vulnerable someone is in that position and so I think within this place where they are both vulnerable they find a way to be kind to each other to want to help each other she regularly goes above and beyond what she would have to do in her contract um, and he does things for her son tries to help her son with his homework and so you see this quite um, beautiful relationship but at the same time, Ogawa doesn't sort of walk away and go, and then it was magical. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a point at which the housekeeper is fired, essentially for doing something kind. And she has no recourse to fight back against it. Um, she, you know, her supervisor punishes her for this kind thing that she did. Um, it's completely not her fault. And so you also see how vulnerable she is. Mm -hmm. Um, Although she does take care in her loving of, or sort of loving care when she's dealing with the professor, the story is not that she always dreamed of being a housekeeper. It's that she got pregnant when she was young and therefore wasn't able to study more and wasn't able to have a higher paying job. And this is the job that she could get. And I think walking that line between not glamorizing labor Mm. but in the same time being able to leave space for there to be dignity in the doing of it is something I admire a lot about this book. In Makioka Sisters, uh, one of the sisters, Taiko, has an interest in doll making and there's a lot of resistance from the men in the family about this. so Tatsuo and Tsuruko are really resistant. They're husbands of two of the other sisters. Essentially, they're being very resistant to the idea of her um, seeming to be like a working girl. Um, working girl is is the is how the narration describes it. And so the quote which I picked out was, in particular, they had their doubts about her renting a room of her own but Sachiko was able to overcome their objections. And what if she was renting a room? It was a studio, not a place to live. And I found that really interesting, obviously because of um, A Room of One's Own um, really jumped out to me. Uh, Obviously, the book is from a different era. It's describing and from a different era. Um, But that idea of it being shameful for this upper-middle-class woman to appear... Uh, like a like a working class woman, and and really for ev- all the men to have very strong opinions about it, and in particular about the the location of her work, um, about her working in a studio rather than at home, for example, um, was seen as uh, really troublesome. Yeah, yeah, and and interestingly, you know, you can still kind of catch glimpses of that shamefulness that attaches to 
working and especially doing kind of dirty work even in out you know there's a couple of times when some of these women are being interviewed by police um or detectives and you know they they're kind of really obsessed by the fact that these women go and do this you know they start work clock in at 12 and then work till five and like isn't it hard work and why do you work during the you know at night doesn't that mean that you don't see your family and the the women are like yeah and that's the (laughs) that's the good thing about it (laughs) no um but you know that there is this real sense of like a woman's place is in the home still um i'm very curious to ask um on a different topic about setting and the way these three novels explore the location so we've mm. we've covered already uh, the domestic setting of the housekeeper and the professor and I was wondering Polly if you could talk a bit about um, whether you had any thoughts of the ways in which um, Tokyo suburbs are explored yeah. in this book yeah I mean I think that's another really fascinating part of this book is that I think you know from a from a western perspective most people when they think about Tokyo, think about the very, you know, the very centre of the metropolis with all the kind of neon lights and and all of that stuff. Um, And I think it's really great to see... I mean, this book is almost entirely set within these kind of very very unglamorous and in at some points very menacing suburbs um one of the things i said before about this book is that it treats sections of japanese society who are often in either invisible or you know receive less attention than the kind of city dwellers and that's not just these middle-aged working class women but also there's a lot about Brazilian migrant workers. Yes. Um, and the the big like they are there are many of them working at this bento factory as well mm-hmm. and the kind of the dorms where they live. Um and you know the the less than salubrious conditions um are described in really vivid detail. Um and I think yeah it's it's a very different Tokyo to the Tokyo that a lot of people know. There's a, there are a lot of parks, mm. um, which, as you will see, play a rather key role. Um, and yeah, I, uh, just sending shivers down my back no, no. just thinking about it. But um, yes, I don't think we should explain it too much. T- totally. Detail. But I think one thing that I will say is that you know, um, what's really key in generating this slightly spooky, slightly mysterious um, atmosphere that actually allows the crime that happens to take place mm. is that there, it isn't very crowded. You know, there are off, like large stretches of deserted land and, you know, factories and things that are... That are um, totally without any sign of any people around. I mean, I would think, I would say that it feels distinctly unglamorous, Yes, um, this depiction of Tokyo. And uh, it's very interesting because um, in Makioka Sisters, I also found 
a very unglamorous depiction of Tokyo.、Mm. One of the sisters, Sachiko, is visiting Tokyo from Osaka, and it is described that as the cab approached Shibuya, she felt somehow chilly even in the summer night. It was as though she had come to a distant, utterly foreign country. Why then was it so lacking in warmth? Why were the faces so cold and white?、Mm. She was an alien. Um, and it describes、uh, how in Shibuya there are these shops, and、uh, she can see affluence, and yet she still questions. She she still feels that it's distinctly cold,、mm. um, and I found that such a striking description because it's so unlike the way in which Tokyo,、um, which is my hometown, is usually portrayed.、Um, In films、um, and in literature, certainly Western literature, there's a question which I'd love to ask, which is、um, that Japanese literature in the UK,、um, in the British literary market, is often、um, the books which I pick up in the bookshops are often very quirky, slightly surreal.、Um, do you feel that that is? Uh, an accurate representation of the Japanese literary market at the moment, or do you think that it's somewhat shaped by、uh, what British book buyers working in bookshops are sort of actively seeking out, or maybe what readers are looking for? So I have a slight sense that the kind of model for this Japanese fiction equals. Quirky, kooky, surreal stuff、um, might have been shaped by the phenomenon that is Murakami in English, translated Murakami.、Um, Murakami, in his extreme breakthrough success, created a market、um, for people who who really enjoy this kind of. Surreal fiction and this kind of glimpse into another world,、um, and maybe you know, relatively. I, I wouldn't say that they're devoid of emotional impact at all, because some of his work is like extremely emotionally affecting. But I think it's more cognitively driven, maybe than, for example,、mm. someone like Agawa.、Um, and I think that. You know, th- there's nothing wrong with with any of that,、um, but I think that from the perspective of publishers and booksellers, you know, because Murakami has been such a draw for people, there's this idea of of wanting to replicate that、mm. and kind of、mm. give people more of that kind of fiction, but in another guise.、Um, mm. And I've actually been, you know. Explicitly told by publishers when I've approached them with manuscripts、um, or samples that you know、oh, it's it's very nice, but it's not really other enough. You know, people coming to to, to Japanese fiction want want something you know other, and this could have been written by a British person. Oh,、um, that's very disappointing yeah, to hear. It was very disappointing、yeah. to hear.、Um, I think the theme of quirkiness. Um, and Japanese literature here in the UK really mix me as someone who、uh, has a British cultural upbringing and Japanese cultural upbringing. It makes me more self-aware of the gaps between the two cultures、uh-huh. and how 
translation um, bridges two languages and really highlights gaps between the two languages. So for me, it also bridges the cultural differences. And um, as as we were saying, I I feel more self conscious reading a work in translation that is um, deliberately set up to be Japanese and quirky um, because it makes me think more about what we're losing through translation or or how we're viewing something through a certain lens. Um, do you have anything to say about that in terms of, as a translator, what are the challenges of translating? Um, you know, I think something that I struggle with a lot is when I'm translating about a, a cultural phenomenon that's unique to Japan and wouldn't be understood by the, you know, the the Western reader who hasn't really had much exposure to Japanese culture. I'm always asking myself how much I should be adding in, how much needs glossing, mm. um, you know, that in a way, I, I feel like my role as a translator is, if possible, to give the English reader a similar kind of experience to the one that the Japanese reader would have if they were reading it in the original. Um, and sometimes that requires additions. But, of course, I'm not the author, you know, and, uh, and um, I don't want to intrude too much on the original text um I certainly don't want to contribute anything that is going to be kind of perceived as ad, you know adding to that kind of fetishization um and so yeah that that's that's one of the things that I'm always struggling with I would say yeah um, it's tricky um I mentioned earlier that I'm not a fluent Japanese speaker, but um, I'm mixed race and part of my family is Japanese. And so uh, I grew up with like, a lot of cultural traditions. So it may be that sometimes I read those books and I have enough history with it that it makes sense. Mm. And so I'm not experiencing that. But sometimes I think the things that are described as quirky just aren't that quirky. Like <laughs> I think... Um, like Mary Kondo, to talk about someone who's mm. on TV, is a lady who comes to your house and she tells you, this isn't making you happy and it's not useful. Maybe get rid of it. Like, it's not magical or quirky or, like, and you people describe her like she's a fairy princess. Yeah. And mm. it's not, I don't think she's doing, yeah, sometimes I wonder if it doesn't matter what the book is, if yeah. it's Japanese, it will be marketed or yeah. read as quirky. Rowan, I'd also love to ask you whether you think that Japanese literature, I know that you read quite a lot of it, uh, I know that you're a f big fan of Ogawa's works, whether you feel that it has influenced your writing in any way? I mean, the short answer is yes. Um, the long answer is it's hard for me to know exactly how. Um, as I mentioned, um, part of my family is Japanese. My mother also studied Japanese literature at university and started a doctorate in it, and she ended up leaving for personal reasons. 
Um, so we all, she always encouraged me. Um, we had a lot of books in translation just in my house. So like from when I was little, like we had a book about like the kappa, the cucumber eating monster. Um, and so, you know, when things are that early, it's hard to know exactly how they influence you. But I was thinking about it and not to make all of Japanese literature a monolith, because actually I know that not all of it is interested in this, but I felt like the books that I was introduced to put a lot of weight on the emotional lives of the characters as being worth taking seriously, regardless of how they look to outsiders. So Askeep and the Professor is a good example of that, but like... Kokoro by Natsume Soseki is like one of the big classical Japanese books. Um, and essentially two dramatic things happen in the course of a reasonably long book. <laughs> and the entire rest of the book is how two people feel about those things. And um, how it's slowly over many years impacted them, essentially. And that that was worthy of being in a book, worthy of considered to be literature, I think was very influential to me. I'm very interested in people's interior lives, in the way in which the small and private actions that we take affect each other. Um, and yes, of course, there are other writers and other cultures who are interested in that, like Anita Bruckner. Um, but for me, it came a lot through Japanese literature. Um, though, yeah, not all Japanese literature is into that. Some of it's like action-based. Of course. Well, and Out is a good example <laughs> yeah. of that, of course. But, um, you know, that's very interesting because having read Harmless Like You and Starling Days, I do think that your uh, novels and writing style... Um, tends to dwell on, as you say, all the things you're interested in, the interior lives of your characters, and um, f uh, almost sort of celebrating the beauty of each emotion as it comes and the landscape that they are in and that synergy. So to me, it, it wasn't surprising to hear, you know, retrospectively, <laughs> it wasn't surprising to hear that you were a huge fan of Ogawa because... I think that that's something in her works as well. Mm. Well, thank you so much to both of you for joining us here today for the Vintage Books podcast. Um, just before we go, I have a couple of quick questions. Um, I would love for you to recommend... Um, I would love for you to recommend um, some more Japanese in-translation books, something a book that you would think that everyone would enjoy... Um, and also I'd love for you to recommend a book by an Asian writer who's not Japanese um, that they might also enjoy. Polly? Okay. Well, I feel like anyone who's listened to this podcast and hasn't read The Diving Pool is already going to be <laughs> like The Diving Pool. But if you like, for fans of Ogawa and general kind of dark fiction, um, I would recommend a book called T Toddler Hunting and Other Stories. Um, it's slightly, well, it's it's quite a lot older um, than Ogawa. Um, it's by an author called Taiko Kono, um, and it's just been re-released by New Directions. I think you can get it in the UK as well, translated by Lucy North. Um, 
I was really obsessed with it when I was doing my masters um, in translation, and it's terrifically dark. <laughs> um, that sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. And is there anyone not from Japan whom you would like to recommend? Because I'm aware that we have spent a whole episode discussing Japanese literature, but there's so many yeah, other interesting there are. authors to talk about who just don't get as much airtime. It's true. And I'm I'm really shameless with this stuff because I just <laughs> read everything that Tilted Axis publishes. <gasps> I love um, if I'm allowed to do poetry, I would yes, say um, a Tilted Axis book um, called Sergius Meets Bacchus by Norman Erickson Paris Sabu is absolutely heartbreaking and wonderful. Um, and also Strangers Press, who are in Norwich mm-hmm. um, and published the Keshki series of Japanese chat books, have just put out a Korean series called... Yeoyu or Yeoyu. I'm not quite sure how you pronounce it, um, but that's on my shelf for oh, wow. reading when I finish this current book. I'll definitely <laughs> be putting those on my, on my reading list. Thank you. And Rowan? Um, okay, so for a Japanese book, The Diving Pool, of course, we all agree, everyone on this table. <laughs> um, but I actually would recommend um, a book called Autofiction uh, by Hitomi Kanahara, and I think... If you were interested in some of our discussion about quirkiness, um, it might be a really good book for you to read because on one level it is quite quirky. Um, It talks about aliens, there's sort of some strange, surreal elements. But it's also about being a woman in society. It's about the pressures that get put on you. It's quite playful in a literary sense. You know, it's interested in autofiction, the idea of what's Mm -hmm. true and what's not true. I think that that book is... Great. And then for a non-Japanese book, um, the book that I am forever and always trying to press on people is uh, Love in a Fallen City by Eileen Chang. Um, It's like an anti-romance novel and it's, I don't know, it's like a satirical society novel in some ways, but it's also like a tragedy in some ways and it's about sort of times changing. Anyway, it's great. And because we were talking about Tilted Axis books, um, there's a book called 100 Shadows by Huang Jun-un um, that is sort of about... It's about it's a love story, and also the shadows in the world are disappearing, but it's also about like capitalism and how it oppresses people. Um, and, yeah, I think it's very, very interesting. As well as the five books in the Japanese classic series were also publishing In Praise of Shadows by Junichiro Tanizaki, um, who also wrote the Makioka Sisters. It's really um, stunning because it's about the beauty of Japanese traditional aesthetics. Mm. Um, and so it's a, it's a stunning illustrated book as well. Um, I'd also like to give a shout-out to Apple and Knife by Intan Paramedita, an Indonesian writer who has also been on the Vintage Podcast, interviewed by Lena Norms. We'll link it in the show notes if you'd like to give it a listen, but um, it is a short story collection that really puts twists, dark twists, and subversive twists on fairy tales, so I would recommend giving that a read if you want to. 
Which just leaves me to say thank you so much to Polly and Rowan for joining us here today. Um, it was fantastic to, to chat to you more about these books and thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to the Vintage Podcast. Weren't they incredible? If you would like to take a look at the Japanese classics, we are leaving a link in the show notes to the whole series. Do go over and take a look. If you enjoyed this episode or episodes like it on the Vintage Books Podcast, please do consider dropping us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Tell a friend. And until next time. Thank you.